Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 12 and follow into chapter 4 through verse 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, uh, um, any among you of an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion." For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is the word of the Lord. Ooh, it was so good last week. And uh, let's just try it again. I may have counted, caught you off guard. I may have cut the reading short. I'm not sure. But we'll try it again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we go. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. It is in your light alone that we see light. Our minds are darkened and our hearts are hard. But you write your word upon our hearts and your gracious work in our lives. And so we come to you today asking that you grant us your light, that you enable us to see your truth, that you enable us to embrace your truth. We need your help. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the next several weeks, we will work through various psalms, examining the issue of true spiritual worship before beginning a longer series following Labor Day. Last week, we began with Psalm 50. This week, we move into one of the most famous psalms, Psalm 95. Debates around Christian worship are extremely divisive in churches. Certain groups contend for things like joy and excitement, while others argue for reverence and respect. 
Churches literally implode over this dialogue, unable to sustain a unity between these two poles. And unfortunately, the Bible is surprisingly absent from these conversations as people kind of devolve into their particular music styles and preferences. To rescue the conversation in churches, it is important to remember that music is not worship. It is an element of worship, but it's not worship itself. The songs and hymns and spiritual songs of the church, the things that we sing, these are simply prayers, and they're prayers set to music. But even more significantly, it's helpful to rescue the conversation by looking more closely at what Scripture actually says about the spiritual dynamics that are to be present when we meet with God. As much as a Presbyterian would like it, there is no set order of worship anywhere in the Bible. (laughs) We like to do everything neat and tidy, okay? I am part of that tribe. But Jesus didn't make it quite so neat and tidy for us. But what we can discern is studying from Scripture, we can learn certain elements that are to be part of worship services, but then even more so, the spiritual dynamics, the things that happen when sinful human beings who've been deeply loved by God are brought into his presence, what does that encounter look like? And so that's our quest over these next four weeks is talking about that spiritual dynamic. And in Psalm 95, We discover several things about these spiritual dynamics, and specifically this morning, we'll consider three things. We'll consider the basis of true worship. We'll consider, secondly, the mode of that worship. And finally, we'll close with the danger of this worship, this encounter with God. So we'll take a brief look at each ahead of water slides. This is no competition for that today. But first, we see the basis of true worship. The first seven verses of Psalm 95 have classically been used as a call to worship. We use that this morning as we brought ourselves into the presence of God. And there is this elaborate call, and it possesses two elements to it. The first element is a summons from God or a command that we are called to gather, we are called to assemble. But then there is a second element, and that is that there is a reason provided, a reason is supplied as to why you are to answer that summons. It is what you would call a motivation. And so a good call to worship will always have these two things involved, a command that God issues to us, and then a reason, a motivation for why we are to come. And so just follow along, looking at Psalm 95. Oh, come, this is the command. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This is the command. And then following in verse three through five, you find an elaborate motivation the reason that you are to offer this worship, this joyful noise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. 
And so the motivation supplied here is that God is the maker of heavens and earth, that he is your creator, he is your sustainer. This is the reason. But then the psalm doesn't stop there. The call actually continues. And what we find in verses 6 and 7, we find another summons, another call, and another motivation that is provided. And so keep following. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is the command, and then you find the motivation. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, this is the, tru- the structure of engaging with God, that we're called by him, and then because we are called by him, and because of the motivations he provides, we answer We answer because he is our creator. And then in verse 7, we learn that not only is he creator, not only has he made us, but he also redeems us. We are the people of his pasture. He is our God. He has made a covenant with us and is committed to us. So he is our creator and our redeemer. He is our maker and he is our refuge. He is our shepherd and he is our savior. It is in God that we live and move and have our being. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in his great sermon in Acts 17. And it's also in this same God that we have our salvation. And all of these great benefits, why they are given to us in the call to worship, it's because of that knowledge. But it's not just knowledge that's learned out of a book and just memorized But it's in the knowledge that God is so committed to us that he has made us and fashioned us, that God upholds us day to day, that God saves us, sending his son into the world, that the God who does all of this, he grants you these benefits so that you would be induced to praise and to love him. This is what he is doing. Some struggle to understand why these two things God our creator and God our redeemer are paired together. It's actually a theme that you'll find throughout the Psalms. You'll find it throughout also uh, the entire Old Testament where this idea of God being creator and God being redeemer, they're almost meld together. And so it's important to get an answer to that question, why? Because obviously it's very significant that there's something at the heart of this that we need to understand because it is no accident It happens precisely because redemption, the work of God to save his people, is seen as an act of new creation in Scripture. That this is what God is doing in salvation, is he's actually rescuing his creatures and his creation from the corruption and the pollution of sin. And so when we confess that God is creator and we confess that God is redeemer, we are talking about the same God, that the God who made everything, the God who upholds everything today, that what he's doing in redemption is rescuing what he made to bring it to its ultimate purpose and to bring all his plans to fulfillment. And the God who created everything out of nothing, he will not fail at that purpose. And so this is why this all belongs together. And we, we come, and when we confess that God is creator and redeemer, this is to induce that praise. And it is that God who compels us. He is the God who spoke, 
and all the vastness of the universe was brought into existence out of nothing. This is his great power. But his great power doesn't stop there. It's easy for us to forget that the creation, God hasn't just simply stepped back from it. He's not simply in the heavens with his feet kicked up taking a rest. But rather, he is the God who upholds all things by the word of his power right now, even today, active in his command, upholding everything that we have, meeting every one of your needs, preserving your life. It is this God who compels us. He compels us as the Father who sent the Son into the world to make his life forfeit for us in order that we could be reconciled to him that we could enter back into communion with him. It is this God who compels us, who sent the Son and then sent the Spirit that we would participate in that communion and be part of his family. It's this God who compels us because of the knowledge of what he will do, that this God promises to return, that Jesus Christ will walk again upon the earth, that God will dwell among us, and that he will finish his work of new creation, that he's coming to renew and restore all things, that he's coming to destroy death, that he's coming to trample down all evil and injustice, that he's coming to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and he will banish all sorrow, that he's coming to make all things new. And friends, when we confess that God is creator and that God is redeemer, it is all of that great body of thought that is being reflected in those two simple words, my maker, my savior. All of that is the content. That is what compels you. That is what induces you to worship. This is your God, and this is the basis of your worship. And it's critical here for us to allow theology to do its work and for it to meet with our worship. And by theology here, I don't mean anything technical and academic. I don't mean anything that's just learned in the book, per se. But I do mean the knowledge, the lived knowledge, the relational knowledge of who God is for you, of who God is for us and his great commitment to us. When we lose hold of that, our worship will be dull and it will be frigid. It may even be loud, but loud does not mean it's not dull. Loud does not mean it's not frigid. That the critical basis of worship is knowing why and who you're gathered in the presence of, why he wants you there, okay? Because he's creator and because he's redeemer. And when we lose touch with what funds and brings to life that worship, it will feel empty and it will feel hollow. This is the basis of this worship. Now second, in Psalm 95, we also see the mode of this worship. And this mode, as we look at this, is going to involve two things. The first thing is it's going to involve the physical engagement of your bodies. This will be enormously unpopular amongst Presbyterians today. Fair warning. Second, it's going to involve the affections of your heart. This is what we learn here in Psalm 95 about the mode of worship. If you follow with me back in verses 1 and 2, we see that the body is actually engaged. 
Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And then further in verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. All right, that's literally kneeling, all right, or prostrating oneself. Bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So the body is part of the engagement with God that he's made us as these physical creatures and we're to be engaged in singing and there is to be a thunderous celebration. Okay, so there is to be volume and it's why I bother to get on your nerves and chide you. Okay, there's to be this joyful explosion taking place. But we also see that the the body is also to be humbled, that it's recognizing something greater than itself, kneeling before the Lord. And so God engages our bodies, that's part of the worship experience, and all five of our senses in worship. But also, worship is not just an external show, because as we said, there can be the engagement of the body, but the reality of the experience is not there. And so what we find is that these physical actions are married to heart affections. It's beautiful in these verses in Psalm 95 where you have not just noise being made, but a joyful noise. And you can't create or engineer that. That is a spiritual motion and a spiritual dynamic that wells up from within. The one who knows that he approaches his creator and his redeemer. This is the one who can bring joy. This is the one who can bring thanksgiving. And in verse 6, we also see that there's to be reverence. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So not only is there this joy and thanksgiving, but there's also this profound sense of homage. There is this idea of respect, and there's this idea of service, that the word in the original for worship carries all of that sense. And so this mode of worship, where it is the affections of the heart, is not something that we can engineer, and it's not something that we can just externally reproduce. That yes, the body is to be involved. It's good to stand and sit. It's good to profess. It's good to engage your body. But it's not just an external thing. That would be to make worship something that it isn't, that it has to be met by these spiritual dynamics. It's also important for us to recognize that the heart attitude involves a range of affections. And you see the broad range, joy, thanksgiving, reverence. And if you've ever tracked with this conversation in church culture, you know that we struggle to hold those things together. Frequently, joy and reverence are made enemies of one another. Churches tend to run to one extreme or the other, mocking those on the other side. We think we've got the corner on the market, we understand it, but even a stiff Presbyterian like myself can see how deeply misguided that process can be. That joy and reverence are not enemies. They're actually friends and they're mutually commanded. And so it's ours to live into that spiritual dynamic, to bring all of that together, to say this is what it looks like to encounter God. We don't get to pick and choose. 
We're not given permission to do that. Ours is simply to obey, to say this is what it looks like to engage with God. And so God wants you engaged, body and soul. He wants all of you engaged because he's your maker and he's your redeemer. This is the mode of true spiritual worship. The final thing that we find here in Psalm 95 is that we also see then the danger of true worship. You're probably familiar with Psalm 95 in the first seven verses, down to the final line of verse seven. This is how much of the psalm is typically used because frankly, the bottom half of the psalm is rather difficult and people tend to avoid it. Follow with me in the end of verse seven through verse nine. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Now it's like, now what happened to the whole sheep thing? Like, we, we were on a good course. We're talking about God being our God, and now we've got this warning being dropped down on us. All right? Keep going, because it doesn't get better. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's happening here is we are being brought back into Israelite history. The church's history is they were brought out of Egypt. And in Exodus 17, if you followed in verses 1 through 7, you find this encounter where Israel doubted the provision of God. Those two words, Meribah and Massa, they simply mean dispute and testing. And so they were testing God and they were disputing with God. As they were brought out into the wilderness, they ran short on water. And so they actually say this to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is despite God parting the Red Sea in front of them. This was despite his visible presence among them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They shrunk back in unbelief, Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us. They panicked in their anxiety. God's works were seen and known, but they were not convinced that God was for them. They doubted God, and they sought out other securities to help them feel more confident. And what's so critical for us to recognize is that all of that history is not just a history lesson. All of that history is critical for you, and it's critical for me, because the reason that it's given to us, it's given to us as a mirror. It's a mirror into which we are to look and we are to see ourselves. We're not simply to laugh at them, to think how hard-headed and how different we would have been. No, we're being instructed today in the here and in the now from history from what happened then and there. And this points to us the danger of worship. These people had gathered at Sinai, and here they were stumbling and falling apart, 
and you know that the long history of Israel through the wilderness, not entering into the promised land, failing to take up God's promises in faith, that this is the continued ongoing struggle of the church. But what we learn is that this God who we encounter is jealous for our affections. And he is warning us not to be hard-hearted, not to be stubborn, like that generation in the wilderness that doubted and turned away. And friends, when we gather, when we answer this call to worship, when God summons us and grants us the motivations to come, gives us the motivations for why he wants us to come, we come before him and he examines us. He addresses us. He speaks to us because he wants us to enter into that great promise. He wants us to be his genuine people who trust him. He wants us to know what it is to delight in all of his goodness and all of his promise. And so the critical practical question for us today is how do we sustain our faith and trust in God, especially in the dry places of the wilderness? Our drought looks like something else, perhaps, but it's nonetheless a drought. And how do you sustain your faith and hold fast to his promise, especially when you can't see how it's going to happen? and how he's going to work it out. How do we do that? If you look at verses 3 through 5 once again, we are reminded of that great truth that God is our creator, and in the Bible that always implies that he's our sustainer. And then very significantly in verse 7, we're reminded of these words, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And we have this wonderful, evocative imagery of God being a shepherd and that we are known by him, that he is our shepherd, that we belong to his fold, we are counted amongst his flock, that he has taken us into his ownership. Friends, this isn't just something that we intellectually assent to. It's not something that we profess and then move on. This is an identity that we are to live into, that you belong to God, that you do not belong to yourself, that you're not under your own steam and direction, but actually you belong to God, that you're a sheep of his pasture, that you're under his care. This is the massive implications of all that's being said in Psalm 95, that God your creator and God your redeemer has made you his own, that he's brought us into his family. John Calvin in his Institutes has an incredibly poetic chapter. If you're looking for an afternoon nap, book three, chapter seven, Listen carefully. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and our deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. And friends, this is the drive of Psalm 95. 
for us to see that identity, that we belong to God, and that we are therefore to depart from ourselves. We are to leave our wisdom and our affections and our desires behind because we are most truly ourselves when we recognize that we belong to him. I've often thought of printing a t-shirt for myself in order to help save myself a lot of trouble. And it wouldn't be for everyone else to see, but it'd be something I could wear each day. It'd be written backwards, but so that in the mirror I could be reminded that I belong to God. There's nothing more true and nothing more profound because in Jesus Christ, he has made you his own. You are his sheep. You are part of his flock. You've been grafted into his fold. And for you to believe that and trust that and to know that even in the wilderness and in dry places that he is as equally committed to you even though you can't see it. And friends, when we gather for worship, part of the spiritual dynamic at play is God sustaining you week by week in the truth of the gospel that you belong to him. And for you to depart from the silliness and the foolishness and the folly of belonging to yourself, of being under your own direction and guidance, under the care of your own wisdom, it ends poorly. We don't enter into rest. But when we know that God, our creator, that God, our redeemer, that God, our shepherd, God, our savior, God, our sustainer is the one who cares for us. This reorients all of life. And so it is this weekly activity. So we understand the basis of being called into worship, the basis of true worship. As we look at that mode and the expressions, and even as we consider the danger of what we're engaged in, this is where life is. This is where true worship happens. And so let's ask God for his help. Father, this morning we come weak and dependent, and we know that we are like these Israelites. And yet, we also come holding fast to your promises. And we are confident in every word that you speak that they, that they are good and they're true, that they're tested and well-tried. And so bolster our faith, and may we always ruminate on the great promise that we belong to you that you are our God, that we are sheep who belong to your fold, that you take us out to green pastures, you water us, you care for us, you restore us, you nurture us. Write these things upon our souls and teach us what it is to turn because of all these great truths to worship you, that we bring together all the joy and the thanksgiving and the reverence that we know what it is to walk with you in life, and that week by week as we come on your Sabbath that we be sent out in strength into the desert and the dry places. Sustain us, God. We are yours. Amen.